this Cycling Tips podcast. I am Abby Mickey, and I am joined by, well, not really the usual crew. Kaylee Fretz is no longer with us. He is off on paternity leave, so no more Kaylee for the time being, but we still have Dane Cash. Dane, how are you today? I'm good. Kaylee's still with us. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Just want to you make, make it sure sound that like we he's dead, get that Abby. point across. He's still around. He's just not on the podcast Sorry. today or for he's a little while. He's not with us. Like he's not with us in this Google chat. Yeah, exactly. Cool. Okay. Yeah. Just want to make sure he's that was with clear us to the in the world. Yeah. 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 He's with us in the world, but he's not with us on this podcast right now. I, yeah. I guarantee he's not feeling with it at the moment or with us at all. I bet he's absolutely cooked and out of sleep, feeling like he's dead actually. After first week with a baby. Uh, that was obviously Dave Shoddy Everett. We also just heard James Wong chime in. James, hello. I do like how uh, seemingly every person who has a newborn, like when, when we ask them or when I ask them, like you know, how everything's going, everyone's like, oh, you know, it's everything, you know, baby seems to be sleeping well. With, you know, it's been the first couple of days, whatever. Hopefully it continues on. And I think everyone eventually realizes, Ronan, maybe you can agree with me or not, that uh newborns when they're just just born i mean they're they're tired they kind of went through a whole lot and they sleep a lot for the first two or three days and then they wake up and then they don't sleep as well and then things get harder sorry kaylee 100 <laughs> percent agree yep and james introduced ronan so we're all introduced before we dive into quite a lot of racing news actually between the tour of turkey amstel gold Brabant's appeal we also have a little promo for a really cool project by Trek and SRAM called The Run-Up um, that I will be discussing later with Jose Bain and SRAM's new affordable electric shifting. Relatively affordable. Rel- relatively affordable. We'll put it in quotation marks, affordable, but more affordable than their other stuff. We'll get to it. We'll get to it. Before we dive into all that stuff, Shadi, what... Do we have to learn about Continental today? Okie dokie, here we go again, sitting comfortably as normal. Alongside their black chili compound, Continental has a few other fascinating technologies manufactured in their German headquarters, which we will be going to once lockdown does well. You know what I mean. Anyway, one of them is the pro, Abby, how do I pronounce this? Tektron Tech, you've been speaking to him. Protection, Tech, like pro- protection, but like protection. Very yeah. clever. There we are. Protection. One of them is the protection used in tires, such as a cross king and race king. Protection is an all-round tire for competition and trail. But the protection technology adheres to bumpy terrain while ensuring a smooth rolling experience, thanks to their four plies under the tread and three in the sidewalls. Protection is also tubeless ready and easy to mount, just what we want. Find out more at continental-tires.com. Surely that should be continental.com-tires. Or is it dash-tires.com? Slash. Slash, not dash. Just chuck Continental into your favorite search engine, ask Jeeves, A-L-O, one of them ones, you'll soon find it. Thank you so much to Continental for supporting this episode. And now... Continental. Continental. Sorry. How, when are, we, are we ever going to get that right? I got it right the first time that I said it on this episode. You did. You did. I, I get it right yeah. every time. 
every single time, 100% Definitely of the true. time, every time. Yeah. Thank you so much to Continental for supporting this episode. And now, Dane, what kind of news you got? I got some news for you. We got some great bike racing over the last week. Honestly, we've had some great bike racing pretty much all year. I think we've been spoiled. Uh, this week we had the run-up and then the first of the hilly races that uh, we call the Ardennes Classics, although technically the Amstel Gold Race, not actually in the Ardennes region, but whatever. Uh, we'll start with Brabantse Pale, which happened on Wednesday. Just a quick kind of catch you up to speed on what happened there before kind of the, the main event of the week, which was Amstel Gold Race. Uh, Brabantse Pale was pretty entertaining, though. On the women's side, we had one of the closest finishes of the year where Ruth Winder beat Demi Volering with a bike throw, despite the fact that Volering thought she'd won and actually kind of pumped a fist in the air to celebrate. Winder took the win. Really impressive ride. Well, from both of them, from, from a lot of people in that kind of final move there. Uh, and on the men's side, Tom Pitcock and Watt Van Aert and Matteo Trentin got away, and Pitcock pipped Van Aert in the finish, which was a bit of a shocker, uh, but great for Pitcock. He had his first pro one-day win and kind of heralded, I think, a little bit of what we might get to see coming up. And that's kind of exactly what happened. So on the weekend, we had a lot of great action in both the men's and the women's races at Amstel Gold. Abby, you did the reports and women's was first. So why don't we start there? The women's race was action from the very, very beginning. Basically, they did seven laps of a circuit because of the coronavirus restrictions. They weren't able to do the usual Amstel Gold course and they moved it into what was the final circuits in 2019. They did seven laps of that circuit, which meant seven times up the Cowberg and the other two climbs on the course, Bemmelberg, Bemmelberg, and the, I can't pronounce them. So it's fine. Anyway, so it was a really, really exciting race. There was a ton of attacking. It came down to Grace Brown off the front, which you never want to let Grace Brown off the front. So first mistake. But she was brought back by Trek Segafredo and SD Works. Immediately, Anamik Van Vluten attacked, shockingly, looked real bad. Basically came to a standstill. And Kashini Wadoma countered that move and got away on the Cowberg. She was followed by Elisa Longo Borghini. And Elisa Longo Borghini tried to get away from her at first, but then they worked together for a couple hundred meters. And as they passed under the Flam Rouge, Elisa... Shook her head, refused to pull through. Kasha got upset, was speaking sternly to Eliza. They got caught with about 350 meters to go, came down to a sprint won by Mariana Voss. Voss's first win at Amstel Gold. She's won about a billion races, but had never won Amstel Gold before this. So great win for her. Second was Demi Vollering again. She almost beat Voss on the line. It was a she didn't. It, I think it was like half a bike length by the time that, but it did look a little bit as if it would have been a Liege Bastion Liege Julian Alaphilippe Primoz Roglic moment for a second there, which was pretty funny. Um, and Annemiek Van Vluten was third. So that was the women's race. Circuit races are pretty good, huh? Circuit races are awesome. I really enjoyed this course. I know that there was a lot of people who who are not stoked on the change when it comes to a race that's been along around for a while, but on the women's side, Amstel gold has not been around for very long. And the style of a circuit like this really suits the way that the women race their bikes, which is just full gas from the gun. 
Um, so it made for a really exciting race, I thought. And we saw a lot of different people trying to, trying to go for it. We saw a lot of people being really aggressive and there was no team that tried the hardest, really. Everyone was just at all times throwing everything they could at the road, which was, I mean, isn't that what we want from a bike race? Yeah. I thought the, uh, the, the fact, all circuit races, I think bring something to the table in most times, which is fans get to see the riders go by over and over and over again. And I think circuit races generally are great for that reason. In this specific year, and last year too, that's a little bit less of a, of a cool factor. Uh, but what you get with a circuit race either way is this sort of repeated uh, trips up the same kind of challenges. And assuming those are entertaining challenges, and that's the real key, if you've got really good climbs and just good things that you're going over and over again, it can be a great race. And I think that's what we get with Amstel. I mean, you go over the Kalberg and the Gulhemmerberg and the Bemmelberg. Uh, those are great climbs. And they, they turned out to make for a great race. And I don't think towards the end of that race, anybody was thinking, oh, man, I've seen them go over this climb, you know, six times already. What a bummer. I don't think people feel like that. So I think people pretty quickly realize that, hey, a circuit race is, uh, is pretty great. Obviously, the Amstel is a classic event. You don't want to mix up the formula too much if you can avoid it. But uh, I think they, the organizers did a great job putting this on in the first place, getting, you know, making it happen when it wasn't really clear whether it's going to going to happen at all. And then we got, yeah, not one, but two great races out of it. So good on them for doing it. So do you reckon question time, we can see more races that have normally been run on the open road, uh, not on the circuit now on like little laps, little circuits or relatively big circuits. And what ones would you like to see run on a circuit? It's certainly the case in North America that that is, uh, I think has been identified as a, as a way to make big bike races happen because the two Canadian GPs are circuit races and they're great events. I mean, they're, they're really fun to be at. Um, if you, if you live in Quebec, you don't have a whole lot of opportunities to see top tier talent racing on local roads. But if you go to the GP Quebec, you can see them go by, I don't know, 13 times and they get, you know, big names and the Maryland classic this past year decided to kind of join the party and they kind of, they, they're going to have a, a circuit race in Baltimore uh, at the end of this year in the run-up to the Canadian GPs. And I think it's because people in North America realize that you can't afford, bike races can't afford because they don't make money, to close off all of the roads required for a big stage race that covers all this ground. We've seen so many American stage races go by the wayside because of this. It's circuit races that have the, the bang for your buck where you close off a much smaller circuit, the fans get a much better experience. I don't think that's as much of a problem in a place like Flanders. I don't think we're going to see Flanders turn into a circuit race. But in places where bike racing maybe isn't as popular and you need a, more bang for the buck, I think that's where the circuit racing really kind of comes in handy. And obviously with the COVID situation, that's another plus. Definitely something I'd like to see put into use a bit more at, uh, in locations where cycling's clearly not massive. Like it'd work well, I don't know, far-flung places where they're trying to get cycling established, trying to get racing established to get, the, like you say, bang for your buck. Get the, get the fans out on the roadside so they're not just going to see it once off dashing past the, the garden fence, but have it come mo past multiple times and be able to not just see it multiple times, but understand what's going on each time. That guy was out front half an hour ago and now he's back in the pack. That guy's out the front. Oh, he's back out for two laps now. It would be really good in areas, yeah, where they're trying to develop the sport a hell of a lot more. I think it's a real difficult balancing act too, though, for organisers in that... Amstel Gold is almost a perfect combination of short, steep 
claims, but they're not. They're they're sort of suiting to a lot of different writer characteristics, and then the small narrow roads and left and right and up and down. You know, it's it's a it's a race that is really good to actually watch because of the the challenging nature of it as well. If it's you know, if the course is too challenging and and the riders have to do it ten or twelve times. I think that really kills the action where everybody waits for the last climb. And I think that's probably why on the last lap of the men's race, they avoided the Kyberg so that it wouldn't come down to that final difficult climb. Um, but at the same time, you know, if the course isn't challenging enough and it's big wide open roads, then, you know, these uh, races on, on local laps can get can get a lit, little bit boring. So it, it works perfectly in Amstel Gold, but it's probably a difficult one to replicate elsewhere. I mean, isn't the thinking behind that kind of like the whole premise behind American style crit racing? For sure. I, I think the, the difference is that a circuit race is typically a little more entertaining and the course being a little bit longer gives you a chance for a lot more. Yeah. Uphill challenges, I guess you could say. I mean, I, I, a crit race, you're not generally going to have the opportunities for explosive attacks from the climbers. I'm not saying that's impossible, obviously, but it's not generally the norm. Yeah. You've clearly never raced Stillwater at, uh, the Nature Valley Grand Prix. I haven't. That's true. Nor have I raced uh, in Valkenburg, which Ronan has, by the way, for the, for our listeners. Uh, we have a, a participant in a world championship in this very podcast right now. Yeah, brought a lot of memories back yesterday. <laughs> One of the best things about that was the, the, the bar right at the bottom of it. They turned it into an Irish-only bar. So it was like, yeah, that, just seeing that now gives goosebumps. But yeah, that was a good day. <laughs> <laughs> You say you're saying the American crits is that's what it's designed for. I'd like to say the Belgian Belgian commesses are designed for that, but the Belgian commesses are just designed for people to get drunk over a long afternoon of bike racing and kind of know what's going on. That's what American crits are for too. American crits are just a a party with people riding their bikes around in circles. Ditto for for the commesses in Belgium then. <laughs> I think we should also just maybe really quickly talk about. Mariana Voss and how it's kind of crazy that, you know, she's probably the greatest women's cyclist ever. And obviously she's Dutch and rides for a Dutch team. And the fact that this is her first ever Amstel win is pretty remarkable. Uh, that had to be really good feeling for her to, to take the win. And I think it's a pretty strong showing. I mean, this is a race where I think the Ardennes classics for the women's Peloton, we tend to see the very best of the best, uh, the, the world's best riders kind of contending for these races. This is where Van Vleuten, Van der Breggen tend to be at their best every year. And so if you can win the Amstel Gold Race, you're probably in pretty good shape. And I think Mariana Voss winning this, it's a big deal for her in, in and of itself. And I think it also bodes pretty well for what's to come. She's obviously sprinting quite quickly right now, but she can also clearly kind of hang on the tough stuff because this, this is a hard race. And I think we could see more of Mariana Voss doing big things this year based on what we've seen so far. I mean, I think that this was definitely a really good um, indication of how she could go at Liège. She followed Kasha on her attack nearly all the way up the climb. She only really started to to get dropped near where the steep part tops out. But I agree. She looked amazing and she rode a really, really smart race. She never touched the wind. She was really, really conservative until until that sprint. And she said afterwards in, in the post-race interview that the whole race was really challenging and, and she really, she felt tired for, for most of the race, but to have felt that way and still pulled off the win that she did was, was really great. She also 
in that group, I think was the undisputed favorite to win in a sprint. And she got very lucky that the tactics of Elisa Longaborghini were a little bit odd and that her and Kasia were not cooperating with each other leading into the finish line. A little bit of a bizarre decision on Elisa's part. I think she she was so aggressive in the races beforehand that she then kind of overcorrected coming into the finish at Amso Gold. Um, if you compare her ride to Ghent Wevelgem, for example. I, I like Elisa Longoborghini's tactics just because she said, I'm going to win or I'm going to get, yeah, and, and, and yeah. I know we we discussed this at length yesterday, didn't we? And yeah, um, I I think she probably regrets it right now. But I appreciate that she really put everything on the line for for the win. And yeah, it backfired, but that was probably the only chance she had in, in that final. Mm-hmm. I think Marina Voss is at a really interesting spot in her career, talk, talking about the way that she's able to play off others' tactics, tactical successes or failures or whatever you want to call that. Uh, earlier in her career, when she was dominating, she could win basically at will. And I think there was a period after she was at her very, very best where everybody's got their eye on her. And it's sort of a similar situation Peter Sagan find, found himself in, at least for quite a while, where nobody wants to drag Peter Sagan to the line. Nobody wanted to drag Greg Van Avermaet to the line for years either. Um, now I think she's in a position where, because she, it's been a little while since she's been at that very top dominant level, I think she's able to kind of thrive a little bit more. She's got a, she's got fewer eyes on her. I mean, people certainly know where Mariana Voss is in the peloton. It's Mariana Voss. But at the same time, it's when she's not at her very best and a little bit removed from that, I think she gets a little bit, a few more opportunities that she might not have gotten to kind of have others play those tactics wrong. Uh, and I think that that's helpful. And it's kind of cool to see her taking advantage of that. I think she benefits also from having Annemiek Van Vluten and Anna van der Breggen be so dominant as well. Totally. Because because of the two of them, she may get kind of overlooked sometimes. With the way that Van Vluten is riding at the moment, I mean, it's not her. It, she's not in her best form right now, but everyone is still looking at her, which means Voss can kind of slip in a little bit more nonchalantly than you'd expect can it can i just interject before we go any further i'm going to apologize now and and can't not gloat at the same time but apologize now that i'm going to have zero opinions or zero views on the two race any other race in this weekend because i was out teaching my little girl how to ride a bike and it was i am i missed all the racing to see her pedal a bike and it's made my bloody day so um i've got views on the last five minutes of I'm still gold. That's all I caught. So continue. I think you could be forgiven for that. I feel like nobody will hold that against you. Oh, it's the best day. You want to get down to work and have a kid and then three years down the road, have the same sort of feelings. What I want to know is, was there at any moment where you weren't sure whether she had beaten someone and you had to go to a photo finish and we had to wait for five minutes to figure out, you know, who had really won? No, but I that's need really to. that's really what happened. I do need to go out and buy some new running shoes because she's fast. She's the, she's the next boss. A good sign. All right. On, on <laughs> to the men's race. Dane, what happened? Yeah, the men's race, uh, similar. There was a lot of action kind of inside that last hour or so of racing. Uh, you know, kind of riders try, trying there, trying to attack, trying to put pressure on the front. You had uh, Yumbo Visma doing a really good job of 
kind of keeping things together and none other than Primus Roglic was uh, pivotal in, in keeping the race, uh, keeping the attacks that were not from Jumbo Visma riders from getting clear, uh, which, you know, if you have Primus Roglic kind of riding on the front for you, uh, Lat Van Aert, that's pretty handy. Uh, and it worked out quite well for them. Uh, in, inside that last 20K or so, I think you, we got, uh, a couple of riders got clear. You had uh, Tom Pidcock and, and uh, uh, teammate Richard Karpas, Mikov Kwiatkowski kind of got up there. They, there was a, a move that got away and then a couple of other riders joined them. Uh, but that group was then caught. Uh, and then with a little more than 10K to go, Pidcock tried his luck again. And this time, Watt Van Aert and Max Schachmann joined him. And it was one of those moves where, to me, I, I didn't get the sense that this was an explosive move right away. But then within like 15 seconds, they had a pretty big gap. They just really quickly left the group behind. And all of a sudden, you had three riders up the road. And the, the group that was chasing them, it had the impetus was there for the chase. I was a little bit surprised with the way things kind of played out over the next 10 minutes or so. You had Bernard, Pitcock, and Shockman up the road, and those are three really strong riders. But there was, there was a, a pretty good chase behind, and there was, there was some work being done by teammates for riders in that group. And I was a little bit surprised to see the gap just kept growing. Uh, and it reached a point where it was pretty clear it was going to be one of these three riders, Shockman, Van Aert, Pitcock. Uh, and yeah, then they, once you get in the last, you know, 2k or so, they started to think about the sprint. You had, uh, you had the, the, the kind of chasing group was far enough behind that we didn't have to worry so much. Uh, they didn't have to worry so much about what was going to happen there. And then kind of coming into that finale, uh, it was, it was Van Aert, Pitcock and Shockman. I think most people probably kind of counted Shockman out for that sprint, which is a bummer because he's not slow, but it was, it was pretty clearly going to be, I think, uh, Pidcock versus Van Aert in that sprint, because we'd just seen that at Brabantse Pale. Uh, we had already had an opportunity to, to watch that kind of very same thing play out. Uh, Van Aert was leading into the last couple hundred meters, and Pidcock was right behind him, and Van Aert managed to hold off Pidcock at the line. But we didn't actually know that right away, because it took about four or five minutes for that kind of official high-tech finish line photo to come out. And if you watched the video, it kind of looked like Pitcock had it at the line. Uh, it was probably the closest finish that I'd ever seen, uh, which is kind of funny because it, we, we just had that like four days prior at Brabantse Pale in the women's race. So it was maybe the closest finish I'd ever seen up to that point. Then we got the Von Aert versus Pitcock finish. Neither of them knew what, who had won at the line. Uh, Von Aert kind of celebrated a little bit as he kind of rolled down the, the finishing straight, but we didn't get an official answer for several minutes uh some of the coverage had already cut away to the kind of post-race shows uh we still didn't know who won but then that that finish line photo showed that von art just barely held on to edge out pidcock and get the amstel gold race win so obviously that's big for von art uh, i think he was the the favorite in that sprint despite having not won at provides a pale uh but a really strong showing from pidcock uh he is to me, it's a, it's a big deal that, that Pitcock has, has so quickly kind of put himself up there in the conversation for races like this. So Brabant Sapel was his first big pro one-day win, but he's been top five at Kerner, Brussels, Kerner, Strata Bianca, and now Amstel Gold Race. We've been talking about Van Aert, Julian Alaphilippe, and uh, Matthew Vanderpool all season, but Tom Pitcock, I think, has really joined that conversation. It's a really nice ride from him. But Van Aert wins the day, and I think you've got to give a lot of credit to his strong team, 
Primoz Roglic being a domestique for you is, it's nice if you're Wad van Aert. And any idea of how far before the finish line the photo finish was? It's a really good question that I do not know. <laughs> uh, I've seen a lot of talk about this because it was close enough that that matters. I mean, if it's centimeters before the line, it's, you know, it's hard to say exactly which photo, you know, which camera was really accurate. Every, every angle I've seen since looks like Pedcock, but except the one that matters. Yep, exactly. That, that's what I thought at the, at the, when it happened. And, and yeah, I, I think it's really tricky. If this, were, if this were a couple of decades ago, I think it would have just been called a tie. I mean, if this were like in the you know, 1930s. But uh, no, uh, unfortunately for Tom Pitcock. Can you imagine if it was a tie, how funny that would be? Yeah, I, I don't think anybody would have been happy with that. Uh, they couldn't have stood on the podium and adhered to social distancing rules because the podium's not wide enough. That's true. Well, you just have to make a bigger podium. <laughs> you could see at the finish. I mean, a lot of times in a situation like that, you get riders kind of looking at each other like, hey, who won? I don't know. <laughs> you know, high five. There wasn't, we didn't get a lot of that. I, I think Van Aert and Pitcock really wanted to win. Both of them individually really wanted to win. And I didn't get the sense that there was a lot of congratulatory sense between either of them. It wasn't like, oh, whoever wins, wins. No, they both really wanted to win. Uh, unfortunately for Pitcock. The official camera, despite the fact that my eyeballs watching the live feed told me it was probably Pitcock, uh, I think it was Wadfan Art, according to the official camera. So what, what else can you say? I don't honestly see a problem with it being a tie. I think it would have made the race and the next edition even better, or even the next race when them two go up against each other even better. It'd be a one-off that I, I'm pretty sure it would have never happened before in any race. That, well, I can remember at least. And I just, But the other thing that cracks me is like, we can land on Mars and send a helicopter up there and have a look around with a nice camera. Yet we can't nail a good photo finish where you can zoom in millimeters when they're just above their heads. So two, two things. First of all, Dave, I think that the budget of the Amstel Gold Race probably isn't quite <laughs> what the budget of NASA is, or at least was. Uh, that point. And, and, and second, the actual, the actual official finish line photo, which is that weird looking thing, it, I, that wasn't as close as I thought it was going to be. The, the actual official finish line photo, it's, it's clear that Watt Von Art is ahead in that photo. If that's the angle, who knows? But in, in that photo, I think if you zoom in, it's pretty clear that, that Von Art took the win. It, the question is like, wh what's the angle of that photo? And why does the live video look like Pitcock won, et cetera? Well, I, I would just like to point out from a tech perspective, I think this is clearly an opportunity for people to push, for, push forward the idea that bigger tires and or bikes with longer mm. front centers are more likely to win. Because if you are in a photo finish, you know, it doesn't matter where you are exactly. It's, it's whose front wheel crosses the line first, right? So if you have a front wheel that's like four centimeters further out in front of True. you, who would have won? Yeah. Oh, massive rake. We need forks and massive rake again. Everybody's going to be riding... Uh, flesh on like 33s, 34s. Somebody's gonna <laughs> put. Like, go. We're gonna see guys on yep. you know knobbies because that maybe the knob will get you over the line just a little bit ahead. I can't wait. Yeah, they're gonna be on. They're gonna be on like you know choppers with road bike uh, with with drop bars. I think they should have just asked Siri. Heads or tails? <laughs> <laughs> I, I was actually uh, in a similar scenario a few years back in a sprint finish, and it was I th I, it was at least as close as yesterday's Amstel Gold finish. And the, the major difficulty that they had in deciding who won in that sprint was that although they had a photo finish camera, they couldn't get it to stop on the exact frame that showed our wheels crossing the line. And it, it took half an hour to get it 
to the exact spot where they needed to see. But once they got it stopped in that location, it was then clear who the winner was. But so, uh, you know, there it's sometimes I, I, I assume that a, a world tour race is using a higher level photo finish uh, equipment than than we were using here in Ireland, but I could be wrong. But you that, assume that. Was at that least a, but yeah, you would assume yeah, you would assume they'd be using NASA level technology, but apparently not. Right, right. But in reality, it was an official standing at the line with an iPhone. Oh, yep, yep. Should we move on to the tour of Turkey? Sure, let's do it. Tour of Turkey, the, the the big story. I'll I'll tell you who won the overall was Jose Manuel Diaz from Delco, which is great for the Delco team. They don't win a whole lot of bike races. Uh, the big story, I think. On everyone's mind from the tour of Turkey was the stages and who won the majority. Well, I guess four of eight. Uh, Mark Cavendish was resurgent at the tour of Turkey. We saw him get his first win in about three years uh, on stage two on April 12th. And then he got his second win on April 13th. And then he got his third win on April 14th. So he got three wins in a row. Uh, the tour of Turkey had a lot of sprint finishes in case you I uh, didn't figure that one out. Uh, kept beating Jasper Philipson in those early stages. And then he picked up one more win on the final stage. So Mark Cavendish came out of the Tour of Turkey with four stage wins. He went into the race not having won anything in three years. And he came out with four stage wins. And he had already looked good at the Sedimana Internazionale, Copi A. Bartali, and the Scala Race. So clearly this is not a fluke. He's in good form. The question is the field. Uh, Jasper Philipson's pretty fast. But other than that, you have uh, uh, Andre Greipel, who hasn't won anything in quite a while, hasn't won anything big in quite a while, uh, and not a whole lot of other really fast riders. So the question is, how much do we read into Mark Cavendish having won four times in Turkey? I think, to me, the big thing is the consistency, because that had been lacking. So even if he's not going to go out and start winning you know, a bunch of tour stages anytime soon again, who knows, uh, he at least is certainly going to be up there, I think, in, in big races now for the rest of the season. I think we can expect to see him continuing to thrive, the kind of consistency he showed in Turkey. He was in the top five on all but one, basically all but the Queen stage. Uh, yeah, really good for Cavendish, Cavendish fans and for Dakota Quickstep, who has to feel good about their investment right now. I think that they, if anything, this will encourage Dakota Quickstep to take Cavendish to some of those bigger races to get a shot against some of the the bigger sprinters and like i said last week he's now got oodles of confidence going into those sprints which makes a big deal when it comes to sprinting and navigating your way through the peloton so i think that yes the the field at tour turkey maybe wasn't the the best of the best when it came to sprinting but it still was a really great place for Cav to kind of jump jump back into sprinting and really show off what he can do. Yeah, that's exactly what he needed, I think. And now I, I wouldn't be surprised to see them throw him into World Tour races. The question is, where does he fit in with the kind of quick step? Because that's a team that has so many other talented sprinters. They have probably the best sprinter in the world right now in Sam Bennett on the team. You expect him to be leading the Tour de France charge. Uh, they also have Fabio Jakobsen coming back from injury. This was his first race back, by the way. Great to see Jakobsen back on the bike in a big race uh, after his very serious injuries at the Tour of Poland last year. They've got Alvaro Hoge. So it's going to be tough for them to, I think, find spaces for Cavendish to, to race. But the immediate exposure they get from Cavendish winning bike races is not small. So if they're thinking about the big picture 
and pleasing their sponsors, I think they're going to put him in some races because when Cav won his first race in three years, it was a big story. And Cav winning four stages, that's a huge story. So I think if I'm doing a quick step, if I'm the sponsors, I'm, I'm probably calling Patrick Lefevre and saying, hey, would love to see Cav in basically every race you can put him in because we're seeing our, our name on every cycling media outlet every day for a week, and that's pretty good. What about the Giro? Because if, if Sam Bennett is going to the tour and Fabio Jakobsen is only just coming back into racing, he'll need a couple months to, to get his form back, get back into it. So I could imagine seeing him in some of the later races, but it seems like with the form that Cav has right now, sending him to the Giro would not be the worst call. I agree. I think they have their kind of Giro team largely figured out. Uh, and they have Alvaro Hoge, I think, possibly penciled in for that while also largely focusing on the GC with uh, Remco Venepool and Joe Almeida. Uh, so that's, that's a big problem. I mean, they, they might have to change their plans if they're going to do that. You know, the Vuelta might be an option. Uh, and you certainly have these kind of the week-long races over the next couple months, uh, races like Ramadi, you know, Tour de Suisse, Dauphiné, that, that kind of race. But the Grand Tours, I, I, you know, they go into the year having a decent idea of what they're going to do, at least for the Giro and the Tour, and I just don't know that they're going to find that room uh, for the Giro, which starts so soon. Mm-hmm. As you said, though, Dane, it's penciled in. That's true. You can erase, you can erase a pencil, can't you? I, I, like you say, it's good for publicity, isn't it? And you name me anybody who won a tour of stage of Turkey last year, you, impossible to, pretty much off the top of your head. You'll be able to say this time next year that Cav won four of them without a shadow of a doubt is, is awesome for publicity. You know he's wandering around some Turkish hotel with big bags of swag, he he knows he's on fire again, or at least, and it, confidence is a huge. We've said it before, a huge part of winning bike races, and he's got that back in yeah, huge chunks of it. Yeah, sure, he's he's intelligent enough to know that he's not going up against the the best of the best at the Tour of Turkey, but he's going to have shown himself that he's working well with a lead out that seems to be working well with him, and is he. It, is getting the results. You can only win, you can only beat who's at the race on that particular date, and he beat well everybody, didn't he, on four occasions? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and as Skelepreis the other day, I mean, it was he was just behind Sam Bennett and ahead of you know Pascal Ackerman, Jacko Nazzolo, riders who are really good. So this is not a fluke. Uh, I'm not I'm not here to say that that he's going to go beat Bennett, etc. Uh, I hope he wouldn't beat Bennett. That would probably cause some strife within the team. Uh, but I, I don't think he's that fast right now. But I do think it's not a fluke, and we, we're going to see him continue to have success, assuming they find races to put him in. That's the question. What, what he has definitely shown is he still has the instinct and he has the nerve. He's back in the middle of a bunch sprint, which we haven't seen him competing in. Like last year, he was doing lead-out duty, and he was sort of, you know, he wasn't getting involved in the thick end of the action. And, and you know, he's right in there this year. He's 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 got that sort of... Uh, thing back where he can seem to slow down time in his mind and make decisions you know he seems to have seconds to make decisions where other riders have like split seconds and that that's one of his biggest assets and you combine that with the confidence that you've said he now has and you know that that was down through the years that was always his, his biggest assets was his confidence his his uh, ability to you know think clearly in that crazy situation in the middle of a bunch sprint and then and then take the right line and make the right decisions and I think we're going to see him win a lot more. What what puzzles me is it's last year he was with um, Bahrain McLaren and he was under the uh, directorship of 
uh, Rod Ellingworth, who's brought him through the, the British cycling plan. And I, I don't understand how Rod didn't get this out of him last year. I, went, I wonder if it is just a case of his uh, Epstein Barr situation from the other years just taking a lot longer to get out of his system in, to get back on his feet and back to winning ways than just having somebody like Rod to, to guide him through. I wonder if like a lot of it is the groundwork that Rod will have done last year. Or just a, the way that both teams are run and how he feels within each team could, could mean something. But Epstein Barr is hard to come back from. And also, I mean, last year was the season that was largely derailed by COVID. And we saw in particular, it was largely the, the sort of the older riders, a lot of the veteran riders that, that really struggled to, uh, I think, alter their approaches during the season. And we did see a lot of riders who we would have expected to do better in the racing that we did get last year, uh, who didn't, who didn't do that well. And I think trying to come back from everything he came back from and have that going on and being at a team where he you know, wasn't maybe in the, in the best spot, all those things combined probably to, to make it a little bit harder. We did talk last year about how riders with kids at home maybe struggled a little bit more to train during, yeah. during the lockdown. He's got like six kids. Well, Rowan's proved that's not a case. And he after do, he's got a kid at home and he went and smashed the Everest in record. So what we said in that pod, fair enough, yeah. But it sometimes feels like two. But yeah, Rowan's, Rowan's proved that what we said in that podcast is a load of old tosh. Dane, what do we have coming up for races? Right. So, well, going on right now is the Tour of the Alps at the first stage this morning, recording on Monday. So uh, Johnny Muscon on the first stage of the Tour of the Alps. That is a race that tends to be a really uh, great run-up to the Giro, although this year quite a few of the riders that we expected to be at the Tour of the Alps are not there. Vincenzo Nibali just broke his wrist. I don't think we've talked about that yet, but he crashed in training the other day, broke his wrist. He's out. Uh, Egon Bernal decided not to race. Uh, so not quite as many big names at the Tour of the Alps as we would have expected, but that's something to watch ahead of the Giro. And then, yeah, the, the Ardennes Classics, the ones that are actually in and around the Ardennes Forest coming up. That's very exciting. We've got Flesh Wallone on Wednesday, men's and women's races. And then Liège-Bastogne-Liège, the final monument of the spring, in the Northern Hemisphere at least, uh, on Sunday. So that should be entertaining. And we've gotten so many good battles between so many of these big names so far this year. And hopefully we'll get more of them kind of coming up over the next few days before we kind of transition into Grand Tour season, stage racing focused part of the year. So get your fix of, of the classics in the next few days, because that's really all we got for a while. Speaking of the classics, there is a really interesting documentary that will be out the day before Liège, Bass on Liège, about the women leading up to the race called the run-up by SRAM and Trek. And I spoke with Jose Bain, who is the voice of the run-up, to get a little bit of details on what that is. So here is my conversation with Jose. Jose, what can you tell me about the run-up? It's, it's very exciting. Um, we are going behind the screens with SD Works, Trek Segafredo, and Canyon Shram. We have embedded videographers who are part of the team and who are showing us what it is like to prepare for such an important classic. Of course, it's the last of the three Ardennes races, and um, the teams are here in hotels. They stay in the south of the country and in Belgium. 
So this is a perfect opportunity to actually show the fans and also hopefully draw in new fans what goes on behind the scenes in a professional women's cycling team. That's really cool. So are there particular riders that will will get to see get ready for the race or is it mostly just the teams themselves? Of course, we have interviews. Um, I will be in it as well, explaining a little bit about bike racing for dummies, um, because we also hope to draw in new crowds who are going to fall in love with women's cycling like like you and I do. Um, we're going to explain about uh, team leaders. So we're speaking to to Demi Vollering, to um, Kasia Nieva-Doma, to uh, Lizzie Dijkman. But also, uh, very importantly, the other roles on the team, the sports directors, Ina Teutenberg, Denny Stamm, and a domestique. What, what does a domestique do? How does she prepare for a race? And how is all the different dynamics on the team in the run-up to such an important day? It's really, my philosophy has always been, if we get to know the women's peloton better, we have to love them because there's so many stories to tell, so many great characters to get to know and this run-up series um is is the first of hopefully many where we are going to meet some of the most vibrant and and strongest characters in the female um uh, peloton that's really cool so basically the whole thing is being shot this week in the lead-up to liege baston liege on sunday correct yeah we we did the first round of interviews today um had a lovely talk, for example, with Anna van der Brecher. Um, I asked her, this is, of course, going to be her last Liège. She's going to be the sports director next year. And I asked her, if you have to make a decision, do you want a teammate to win or do you want to take this final chance yourself? And um, the answers that the writers gave were very surprising. Um, Ashley Molman Passio, for example, said, um, for us as riders, this is actually an easy week. The only thing that we do is rest and, and try to focus. And we have it easy, which of course, from the outside is not something that you would think that the riders have it easy. Um, but we try to bring the images uh, from, from the team. So we are going to, um, to the recons that they do of, of Liège. We're going to be at the finish of Flash Wallon, which of course is also very important to see um, how the teams are doing there. Some teams will be celebrate. One team will be celebrating and some other teams will be, um, well, hopefully plotting a plan for their last chance in the Ardennes trilogy. And that's a story that we would like to tell how these three races are interconnected as well. So where are people able to watch the run up? Uh, it's going to be on YouTube on Saturday. So you can watch this half hour documentary and have all the insights to watch the race on Sunday. And hopefully what, what we really want to achieve is that, yeah, I heard that in the run up and I heard Demi Vollering tell us about this or that, or Elise Chabet uh, talk about her role as a domestique on the team so that people get an extra dimension when watching the women's race on Sunday. And of course it's going to be on cycling tips yes, as well. So of you can course. find it there. Yeah. Cyclingtips.com, it'll be there. We will put it up on the site for everybody to see before Liège, Bastogne Liège on Sunday. So keep an eye out for the run-up. It's a very exciting project by SRAM and Trek that we're really happy to talk about. All right, before we move on to the nerd nugget of today's episode, this week's episode is also brought to you by Bontrager and their line of daytime running lights. 
Why ride with daytime running lights? Because they work. Research shows that cyclists drastically overestimate how visible they are to drivers on the road. It also shows that riding with a flashing daytime visible light is the best way for a cyclist to increase their visibility to drivers. If you aren't riding with a daytime running light now, check them out. They are easy to use, small, powerful, USB rechargeable, and can be seen for two kilometers during the day. Bontrager's flare taillight was the original daytime running light and is still my favorite. Find yours at Bontrager.com. And thank you to Bontrager for supporting this episode. Nerd alert. Nerd alert. Nerd alert. Nerd All right, James. Nerd alert. Nerd it's time alert. for Nerd Nugget. Nerd, nerd Nuggets? Nerd Nugget? What's our, <laughs> what's our Nerd Nugget today? Uh, well, I think we have to talk about the release that SRAM put out last week of their new Rival Axis electronic road group set. Uh, people have been anticipating that this would happen for quite a while. I mean, they already had uh, Red and Force ETAP, uh, ETAP Axis. And it was seemingly just a matter of time before Rival came out. I mean, SRAM seems to be pretty clearly going all in on the wireless electronic setup, and they obviously are because uh, it, it basically is functionally identical to Red and Force. Um, you lose a few features, like you don't have the adjustable byte point on the brake lever, and you can't plug in remote shifters. And um, but that's honestly kind of about it. The biggest downside is it's a lot heavier. Uh, it's... I think the whole group said something like three kilos or something. It's quite heavy. Um, but uh, uh, it, it's also pretty inexpensive, uh, relatively speaking, of course. I mean, you can get uh, the two-by setup with a power meter uh, for about 1600 US. Uh, without the power meter uh, is about 1400 US. Uh, so all things considered, it's a pretty good value. I'm not going to say that it's like a bargain group set because it's nowhere near what you would pay for like a, a good mechanical setup, like, you know, Shimano 105 or something like that. But if you've been looking for a wireless electronic group set from SRAM and you just didn't have the money for Force or Red, then now you have a pretty interesting looking option. I'm, I'm loving that SRAM have brought out, uh, should we say, do we say a mid-range electronic group set? Because, yeah, every, it's not entry level. It's definitely not entry level because of the price. Because I just, I've just jumped while you were look, telling us the price. I jumped on one of our favorite search engines, Ask Jeeves again, to find out how much a SRAM Red 22 group set is. And you can pick it up for pretty much the same price, if not a little bit less. I absolutely love SRAM Red mechanical shifting. And you've got to say, does an electronic, a mid-range electronic group set offer anything more apart from, yeah, you've got the wider gearing and that lot for a group of people who need that sort of thing over a mechanical, super high-end, super light group set? It's a, it's a difficult one to call, I would have, I would have said, and it's definitely going to be sort of horses for courses because it it's still a lot of money. It is still a lot of money. Yeah, and I definitely hear you on the mechanical thing. I mean, it's something that I asked SRAM about. And, you know, SRAM clearly has made the decision that it, and I'm guessing they have some data to back this up, but they've clearly made the decision to prioritize kind of features over something like weight. Um, they, they're betting that at that range of the market, we're, look, we're talking about complete bikes that are going to be like uh, probably anywhere from like 3,500, 4,000 US up to 5,000, something like that. Um, but they're clearly betting that riders in that market are more interested in 
kind of like the wow factor and the precision of wireless electronic shifting versus the low weight of a higher end mechanical setup. And my hunch is that it's probably the right way to go in terms of sales numbers. Um, in terms of weight, I mean, you know, SRAM has unfortunately never really been able to go head to head with Shimano at the OEM level for mechanical drivetrains. They, they just never were able to. I mean, they just they just got squashed um, in, in sales figures. I mean, they haven't bothered to update any of their high-end mechanical stuff in a pretty long time now. Um, and they've just obviously made this decision to kind of leave that market to other people. Um, you know, ultimately, we don't really... It, it it's it's not even clear at this point if Shimano is going to continue on with high-end mechanical shifting because you don't really see that very much at OEM either. And it may just end up being sort of like a like a digital versus versus high-end mechanical watch sort of scenario where one isn't necessarily better, but more mainstream companies are obviously content to leave that market to like the boutique people, which in this case is going to end up being Campagnolo. And yeah, like I, I was out with uh, the local club spin here on, on Saturday past, just for the first time in nearly a year. And and all the talk on the club spin was, was of two things, was how good electronic shifting is and which power meter should I buy? And I think that's, you know, that, that, that's a clear indicator of where things are going here at the moment. While I'm still a very big fan of mechanical shifting, I think, uh, you know, the, the, the way the market's going and, the, and, and what writers want to see now is, is wireless or maybe not wireless, but it's definitely electronic. And from what you were saying, James, of your experience writing this new rival access group set, it seems to feel and shift just as well as the higher tier it's the same it is exactly the same um if anything uh, i had an interesting discussion with matt phillips from from uh from bicycling magazine because he and i both independently felt that uh the rear shifting on rival somehow felt a little bit faster than red and force uh and sram didn't have any explanation for why that would be Uh, but someone actually chimed in in the comment section of the article that uh maybe just by virtue of the fact that rival is heavier and kind of chunkier and stiffer potentially as a result, especially in the rear derailleur. Um, I mean, electronic derailleurs do put out a lot of force. I mean, this is, this is what, no pun intended. Uh, this is why so many pro teams have been going for like, you know, custom CNC machined, uh, derailleur hangers and stuff like that. It's not so that their stuff uh, can survive more in a crash. It's so that they get better shifting because the things do put out so much, so much force on the chain that you know suddenly you really need to have that stiffer foundation. Um, but if you potentially have a rear derailleur that is just bigger and heavier and chunkier and potentially stiffer, then maybe that has some sort of explanation as far as why the shifts seem faster. I, I, I don't know, um, but yeah, I mean, I, I equate this whole thing to you know a lot. Of, similar to like, you know, manual versus uh, automatic transmissions in cars. I mean, it's, I personally prefer manual transmissions, but I also know that they're not necessarily better. Uh, and it's very clear in the marketplace, which one of those is preferred by the vast majority of people. So that's the direction that SRAM is going in. And if you're chasing dollars, if you're going after sales, it's kind of hard to argue with that. Can we see a 105 coming down the pipeline to go up against this then? You would have to think. Um, it's it's funny. I mean, Shimano has always, always kind of just marked to the beat of its own drum. I mean, they kind of just do whatever they think is appropriate. I mean, people in the in you know in the general consumer space, they they see something like this, and then they see you know, let's say Shimano did come out with 105 next year or something, 
you know, that would not have been developed in response to rival access. I mean, these things take years to develop. So that would have been something that Shimano had, that would have been thinking about. And you have to think that that conversation has come up within Shimano and you have to think that it seems like that's the way things are going to go. But it's hard to say because 105 DI2 would be pretty expensive also, I would think. And if Shima, you know, if SRAM is going all in on wireless and they're not really doing anything with the mechanical, it seems like they are kind of just repositioning themselves as more like a mid to premium level electronic only road company as far as on the roadside. I mean, not, you know, not talking about mountain mic, not, uh, not talking about mountain mic stuff here, but it, it almost seems like SRAM is kind of just willingly giving up that portion of the market. Um, I don't know. It remains to be seen what happens, but I mean, without any commitment to mechanical development from SRAM, that just seems to be where it's going. That definitely upsets me then because mechanical stuff they make's lovely. Well, I, I find it lovely. No, a lot of people aren't in the, don't think the same way as me, but yeah, I'd be sad to see the mechanical stuff vanish from their catalog if that is the case. Yeah, agreed. The uh, power meter, James, it's single-sided. It is. is it's it? a single-sided spindle-based power meter. Um, so it just, it lives inside this, the, well, the guts anyway, live inside the spindle. The strain gauges are actually are obviously built into the spindle. Um, and it's designed to be a, an add-on upgrade if you want later. It costs like 250 bucks or something. It's quite inexpensive. Um, I'm sure a lot of that has to do with the fact that the, the arm itself is a pretty basic, you know, solid forged aluminum thing. It's, you know, again, not, not light. Um, but if you, again, if you care about your, you know, electronic shifting and you just want a power meter and you're not terribly concerned about carrying along some extra weight, then yeah, like I said, I mean, I think SRAM is probably pretty smart to have made that decision. Yeah. I think that's sort of, you know, when, when I look at a lot of the bikes that I've seen in the club spin at the weekend as well was, you know, riders have invested in a new bike. They've gone for an electronic group set and then it's later down the line that they look for a power meter. And I can't think of another power meter upgrade at the moment that you could pick up for $250. And uh, so that seems like a really smart move as well, that it can be upgraded after, uh, you know, after, after you've bought the bike, after you made the initial investment, if you then want a power meter, you can, you know, Stram have got you there as well with, or have got an option there for you as well. Yeah, I think so. And, you know, I, I feel like this is something that we'll probably talk about some more in, in more depth on the full Nerd Alert podcast later this week. Um, because there is an awful lot to talk about, not so much as far as the actual bits go, but just kind of more SRAM's positioning here. Um, but my suspicion, again, like I said, is if if SRAM is going for kind of like bread and butter, meat of the market sort of thing, then you know, I, I think they were probably smart to prioritize the function over the weight. But you know, that'll remain to be seen. But either way, I think it's safe to say that you're going to see an awful lot of this moving forward. Marketing-wise, it feels very... Over the long term, they've been producing electronic group sets. You look at it, you could see it's kind of like the iPhone. When the initial one came out, it was 400, 500 pounds, dollars, whatever it was. And now it's like a thousand dollars and a 400 dollar phone looks cheap compared to that stupid money price. So you've got to ask yourself, is this, what is it? $1,600 group set going to result in us seeing a, a more expensive red group set down the road that does more bells and whistles, obviously, but it's going to be a way that that's going to allow them to go. Well, there we are. Stupid money group I mean, sets for you now. 
I guess you could, but red is already awfully expensive. So uh, how much more could it get? I mean, like I, I have a hard time thinking that SRAM is going to be able to command like Campagnolo pricing. Like like EPS is just outrageously expensive. Um, and I don't, I personally don't think that they have that level of brand cachet to be able to try and pull that sort of thing off. But I don't know if they want to. I, I, I don't think that they're trying to. But surely this is where rival the rival comes in then. You're getting a whole new market of people wanting electronic group sets coming on board. Yeah, you're you're jumping in first with with it all, and getting that that new influx of people who haven't had an electronic group set before, wanting to be associated with SRAM. So later on, yeah, down the road, they're able to push the price up because everyone's well, SRAM fans now. All that, yeah, that new group. Of for sure, there's there's obviously room to move up from there, no question. So. Uh, you know, that begs the question, are we going to see a, like a, an apex access group at some point? Uh, I don't know how much cheaper it could get. Like it's, it seems kind of unlikely, but we'll, we'll see. I was just going to ask that cause I, I don't have a great sense of what the future holds for this. Do you, do you, James, do you expect that this is something that just continues to trickle down? Like, do we see hybrids with Shimano Claris with each, like electronic shifting in, you know, five years? Is that just going to be the norm? I don't, I don't really have a sense of what that looks like. I don't know either. I mean, all, all, I mean, the development of all of this stuff seems to be where the bulk of the cost comes from. I mean, the actual components, certainly the more of them you make, the, you know, once you kind of amortize everything out, like it, the, the per piece cost certainly starts to go down. Um, but the way it's been explained to me, um, again, this is certainly from the perspective of, you know, SRAM and Shimano and that sort of thing. But the way it's been pr explained to me is that it, it's only so cheap that you can make stuff like this. I mean, it is still electronics as opposed to like a little you know ratchet and cable and spool and like that sort of thing like you can just make mechanical drivetrains cheaper that's just that's just how it is um so how cheap will these things go i don't really know but i mean all the components are shared so you know that development cost has always has already been done as far as the electronics go um and how much cheaper it could get i don't I, you know i don't really have a good answer for that well that is all we've got for the Cycling Tips podcast today. Thank you so much for listening, and we will be back next week to discuss more in the world of cycling. Bye-bye. Bye, guys.